The people who are successful in academia are the nicest people in all of science, and they have to be in order to survive in academia because academia is completely, completely dependent upon consensus. At one time, it was more dependent on, you know, actually having experiments that support your position or actually having a well-reasoned and sound argument. But that's no longer the case. Now it's about sound bites and also very few people really understand the larger theory and its implications. They understand little pieces of a large puzzle. And the only way to persist in that is to be some combination of disinterested in details, very relatively intelligent and able to carry on a conversation and knowing how to mimic the sound bites. And, and that's about it. It really doesn't matter whether you really understand the science or not, because it's always right there. There's always a textbook. There's always a wiki link you can look up. There's no longer any need to understand anything at all, and they don't. And that's why the difference between a scientist who can actually, you know, make, let's say, make discoveries, and one who's just collecting a check, is whether or not they are willing and eager to discuss details. A real scientist will be frustrated anytime he can't discuss, discuss details. A fake one will be frustrated anytime they're asked to discuss details. And that's why real scientists can't really survive in academia, because academia is just, its very nature is consensus-oriented. That's what it, it's what it does. Every single step of the path has to do with consensus and about teaching a model showing how the model works and and mostly that and very little is is about the limitations of the model or whether or not the model is actually true they just use their models you know a good analogy is they have models that predict epidemics for example and there's going to be anytime there's let's say something new that comes along, there's going to be various models that are people present, right? And there's going to be a range of a range of drama associated with the results of these models, right? And they're basically put up for the media to select which one. And once the media makes a selection, that's the one that gets the press and whoever wrote that therefore becomes the person we look to for advice as to how to best avoid would exist only in their model. And that's how we got the whole COVID-19 thing, by the way, people. I don't know but if anyone's noticed, but the actual symptoms of this are basically like a bad cold, you know? that's And the reason that's what they're like is because that's what it is. It's a bad cold. Now, bad colds do kill people. So I'm not saying we should take it lightly. I'm just saying, though, that shutting down the economy because people have caught a cold and some of them are dying is surreal. It's surreal how in the media you'll, you'll read a, something, a story where they don't really have a way of testing for this and they don't, and that therefore these companies are scrambling to come up with something, right? 
And then on the very next story, they'll be talking about how they've had so many confirmed cases and the death count is going skyrocket. And you look at the numbers and it's sure, you know, it looks dramatic, you know, 100 people. And I'm not being sarcastic either, you know, 100 people in Santa Clara, let's say over a certain number of months. And I go, God, I, that could have been people I know. That's where I live is Santa Clara. And, but then uh, I go and look at the stats of pre-existing years and guess what? It's not much different than any other point in time. So we have something we can't test for, but that we're all running from. Sound unusual? No. Now, if you've been around, let's say, global warming or meteorology or any number of different disciplines of which drama can be tied to them, you'll see that it's always the case that different scenarios are produced by models and they put them up for selection and whoever gets selected by the media is essentially uh, the new hero. That's how it always works. That's how it's going to continue to work. That's the game. It's only a matter of how desperate you want to be to be the one in charge to be that game and how many, you know, other people's careers you're willing to end on the path to getting to that goal, as appears to be the case with Dr. Fossey and, and Ms. Mikovits, who appears to have been basically threatened with being put in jail for five years if she didn't reveal exactly uh, reveal re, no re, if she didn't retract something that she claimed something that now is officially unprovable one way or the other by the way it's not something that's been decisively decided and yet she's not allowed to work and now we have dr fauci telling us that we all have to stay inside because of a cold and supposedly because this cold came from China, that therefore, in a place called Wuhan too, by the way, that therefore there's some drama there. Of course, we later find out, or at least that's how it appears to me. Maybe I later find out through the, through the media that Dr. Fauci had actually been behind payments to that lab to produce a certain pathogen. I'll leave those details to somebody else. Apparently it has something to do with increasing its ability to attack humans, which he may have had or felt he had a viable reason for funding. Whatever the case though, it appears that he used some underhanded techniques, from what I can tell, in terms of forcing us to have the understanding that he believed in about how these things spread and what they are. There's just so many weird coincidences about how all of this circles back around to Wuhan because Wuhan is the place where the funding went to for for that research. And it came from the United States government. It was in the order of, if I remember right, $15 million. And what that means, I don't know. I don't know. But the thing is, I certainly don't trust the media, not not in the least, and I don't trust the political system, and I certainly don't trust science because um, all science is just a 
engine of consensus. That's all it does. It's no longer science anymore, people. Sorry. That's, that has passed. We are no longer in a period in which people will actually try to make discoveries. Not in academia, anyways. So, if someone is trying to make discoveries, it will only be because they've been able to evade academia, avoid it, and completely not deal with it. And that happens to be me. I have avoided academia, and I have a theory that's going to basically knock their socks off because I figured out what they mis mistook. I figured out the mistake that happened in the middle of the last century that underlies the confusion of all of the paradigms that have anything to do with water, especially meteorology and climatology, especially those, because water is so intrinsic to them and also because there's so much confusion, spiritualistic thinking, thick politics, and, 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 and public mythology about all of this. It's a big mess. It's a it's a mess of different different ways of pretending like you understand what you don't, which all became necessary because of that mistake. Not understanding water caused us to not understand meteorology and storms, which caused us to not understand the atmosphere, which caused us to not understand the climate, and which underlies a greater misunderstanding of this notion, this silly notion that CO2 is supposedly controlling the temperature on this planet, which is about as silly as suggesting that kangaroos are controlling the temperature of the planet. It's about as stupid as that, you know, maybe not even that stupid, you know, maybe we'd have to go with koalas on that. Okay, whatever. I'm like a pirate, science pirate. I consider myself like a science pirate. What I mean by that is most people, you can think of their understanding of science and of reality and of all logic and all that stuff as being like this boat on, on an ocean and it just kind of gets blown around from one place to another. And Oh, this thing's actually taping. Hey, that's good. You know, uh, gets blown around from one place to another. And I think of myself as like a pirate where I want to come upon you suddenly and completely take over the boat and change you all, all of you, as many of you as that survive into fellow pirates so we can continue to do the same. That's my goal. That's my goal is to take over your uh, intellectual understanding of the subjects that I discuss. So, you know, I mean, that being as it is, it's necessary for me to go on the attack. How else am I going to win? You're not going to engage me, right? You just, you're just floating along. You don't care. I have to go on the attack, and that's what I do. And so I try to get you to surrender as quickly as possible, just to minimize the, you know, I'm a kind of a warm-hearted guy down under. 
I want to minimize as much loss of life as possible. And so I hope you just do the right thing and just give up easily. In fact, that's almost always what happens. Of course, they always mutiny too. So it's not like, it's not like uh, I'm getting anywhere <laughs> I respect. But yeah, so as a, as a science pirate, I don't really feel like I have to comply with the rules that other people like to comply with. Like, you know, treating with them with some respect when they haven't actually said anything important. That's the number one rule that I don't agree with. You know, if you, if you want to be treated with respect, you have to be able to discuss things that are, that are uncomfortable with you, comfortable to you and be able to maintain honesty and logic and be honest about what you don't understand. And, and that's going to be tough for a lot of people in academia because their whole career is all about exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite of that. You never admit that you don't understand. You just choose your words carefully. You choose your projects carefully. You choose your conclusions carefully. You, you it, it's, it's more of a numbers game. And just, you know, these are people who've been forced to read things they don't really care about. So they do. And then they have to write papers about things that sometimes they don't care about. And the things they once cared about just don't have any chance of being ever addressed. If you go into meteorology and you had the thoughts I had when I was that age, I would not have survived in the in the field. Just wouldn't have because, I, you know, I was determined that there's some kind of plasma in the atmosphere. Even now, I can't believe other people don't think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable thing. But... You know, I had I had my agenda. I knew there were things that I was looking for. I had always believed there was some kind of a plasma associated with the sheath of tornadoes. And when I say always, I'm actually talking about since I was eight years old. Because at that time I was giving a given a book on meteorology, and in it, and it was a very professional little pamphlet of a book, but in it it described the situation where a tornado picks up the contents of a stream carries it for miles and dumps it all in one place within a hundred yards. So that to me proved that the tornado was essentially a container, right? I mean, it contained the stuff. It didn't just blow it up. It wasn't just a fast wind. If a tornado was just a super fast vertical wind, it wouldn't and couldn't juggle everything as such. There had to be some something containing it. So there had to be something in the atmosphere that was allowing such a phenomenon to exist. Otherwise, this phenomenon wouldn't exist. That, to me, at eight years old, made sense. Still makes sense. And anyone who says it doesn't make sense, it's because you're uh, delusional. You know, you can all see what a tornado does. You can all see that power. You can all see that there's something genuinely structural about the sheath of a tornado. I mean, uh, that sheath, when it hits something, it, it hits it with a force that's very different than just wind, no matter how fast you call that wind. Those sheaths are, are forcing wind to be sucked into the funnel right at that tip. And that tip is where the most destruction happens on the tornado. 
Now, this is plainly obvious to any normal, reasonable human being, but we're all taught to believe scientists understand things better than us, so we're all taught to not really think that way. But I was eight years old, and um, and as I as I matured, even though I didn't was hardly you could hardly say I was obsessed with the notion, it was always to me it was something that was already proven. It wasn't like there was anything. The only question was, what is it? You know. Now the people who think that there I should have followed what scientists what scientists have said and what they do say you know the question is well which ones and why why do we follow them I mean what do they say and who are they and there is no one there there's just no one really has very much of an opinion at all about tornadoes that I've seen and the opinions I do see they're just all they're all phony science you know it's people doing oh we found a vorticity equation look we applied it here and it's ridiculous nonsense it's it's just a cartoon of a discipline, but it's necessary for them to have to have done that because if they didn't, people would have really known that they didn't know what they're talking about, and they wouldn't and they would be asking these questions. But it turns out they didn't have a chance of actually understanding it because there was no room in science for this notion that water has surface tension that can be maximized on wind shear boundaries. There was that notion did not exist you know that notion only existed when I figured it out but now I've figured it out and so that's where that structural that's where these structural capabilities come from people it's from water it's from the surface tension properties of water that get essentially amplified on wind shear boundaries